Um, so I'll just quickly introduce Kelvin. Kelvin Gen is the Art of Works Managing Director. He is a strategic systems thinker with experience in human factors and organisational re-engineering. He developed his systems thinking approach working in the Royal Australian Air Force for 10 years. Following this, he led systems and risk management programs across the Asia Pacific and Europe with Compass Group PLC. So I think you've all heard enough from me. I don't want to take too much of your time, get straight into it. Um, I'll hand it over to Calvin now and let him take it away. Thanks, Calvin. Thank you, and uh, welcome to uh, everyone who's uh, joined in the webinar today. It's a real privilege to uh, join with this uh, group and uh, share some ideas and engage in some discussion and, and debate. Um, I've been on this journey for a long time now, uh, working uh, with uh, adaptive safety uh, and safety differently for probably over 14 uh, years through this process and seen um, a lot of uh, innovation and change uh, during that time. So today I want to take you through a little bit of a, a journey, um, introduce you into uh, some of the, the ideas because uh, I'm, I'm not going to make the assumption that um, everybody's uh, completely familiar with the safety differently uh, thinking. I'm sure lots of you, you are in one way um, or another. Um, but I want to introduce you into the evolution of the thinking and the ideas and then take you into some of the practices and the experiences of, of the practices uh, that we've had, uh, particularly over uh, the last uh, five or six, six years uh, in this space. It's, it's interesting that um, one of the questions that, that we get all the time about um, safety differently is, can you actually do safety differently? There's some misconceptions about safety differently. Uh, in there is that um, it's about, you know, uh, not complying uh, with the, the legislation, not following uh, the rules, or a whole range of, of things which are, uh, are fundamentally not um, within uh, within our thinking. And um, so one of the exercises we've done over the, the last few years is um, a little bit of a challenge. Uh, this idea came from um, Gapbinder, which is something which is done with uh, policy people uh, in Europe, um, just to get a, an understanding of people's interpretation or, or knowledge of some, some really basic questions. And we simply run um, a very simple uh, survey uh, with the different safety professionals that we're, we're interacting with. Uh, and that survey has um, usually between eight and ten questions and three multiple choice answers uh, to those questions linking back to some of the fundamental uh, uh, principles. Um, and this is sort of a sample of the questions and we're just trying to get an understanding of what are the people's knowledge about the constraints um, of the legislation as such. This is a pretty typical result that what we get um, about once we test um, that knowledge is approximately about 2.6 um, out, of, out of eight or across the, the sample groups that we've run over time is about 21% um, percent, um, uh, correct in terms of uh, their understanding of some, some of these simple, simple questions. What that, and, and in essence, it's not because they're wrong um, uh, in terms of their interpretation, but it may be the way that the safety systems have been designed, have actually designed in constraints that actually don't sit there within uh, the systems, uh, or within the regulation and rules uh, that apply to what to do. In essence, there's a lot more freedom within the regulatory framework um, than we actually uh, sometimes uh, think. And it's often sometimes even within the regulatory interpretation, but often that regulatory interpretation is against the systems that have been created by organisations themselves. So part of the, the process of safety differently is, is opening up the thinking and opening up the possibility is there are different ways to engage uh, with safety and different opportunities uh, to explore. So when we kicked off this process, one of the things we started to think really carefully about was brand. And Brand is an important concept and it, it's, often, um, it's often paid little attention to from, from, from a safety perspective. And um, so whenever we see a brand, it immediately evokes, you know, uh, different ideas about it. We see the Apple brand, for example, and we, we do think about innovation and, you know, a whole range of uh, things in that space. So with any brand, it'll attach its own values and contributions. Well, well, safety is exactly the same. Safety has a brand and it has a perception that's out there. And 
when we embarked on the safety differently journey, it was thinking about, can we reinvent the brand of safety? Can we shift it? Now, I just run this exercise numerous times over the years, but even yesterday, I just ran a, a Google search um, uh, on the image uh, library uh, within in Google for safety, just to see how is safety being interpreted in the visual environment um, uh, for, for Google. And, and when we, look, when we look at that, we get this sort of uh, image of safety. It's about caution. It, it's about risk and hazards. It's about the stop doing things, the not do, doing things. And the question is, is that the brand that we want for safety? Is it seen by many people as being the problem to overcome rather than the solution to embrace? And it's conditionally, I think this is the broad experience of how safety has been reflected. It's often missing the great value that sits within the safety, safety offer. And the thinking about safety differently is the thinking about shifting this space of thinking. So the idea is, how do we shift from barriers to thinking about flexible value-add dynamic solutions, in essence, being part of the um, way that organisations succeed and build success for successful and safe work. So one of the underpinning principles when we talk about in safety differently is this concept of connection between successful work and safe work. They're intrinsically tied together and um, as a practice, if we can link those two things together, that will be the way in which we shift the brand. And we'll start to shift the brand. And hopefully what, you know, if I start searching um, Google in the next two or three years, it's this type of image that we'll start to see is that uh, we'll start to see this really positive image about the contribution. And people in organisations will naturally come to safety as being part of the solution engine uh, within their organisations, um, as opposed to coming to them about the compliance management or, the, or meeting the obligations. Uh, there will always be an element of that, but um, it'll be very nice to transform the safety um, practice across all industries into this innovation and solution mode. So if you think about the history of safety, um, some of you may be familiar with this particular um, event. I'm going to come back to it um, a little bit later uh, in the uh, present presentation. But what you're looking at here is the successful landing of a B-17 Fortress a bomber during the Second World War. And uh, you might be surprised if you haven't seen this image before that I am labelling this as a successful uh, landing. The reason I'm saying that it's successful is that um, this uh, particular aircraft was sent out on a, a sortie, um, uh, which uh, normally would have been a, a bombing uh, mission. Um, and it's managed to complete that um, sortie and successfully return back to the runway, landed the aircraft, and in the process of uh, returning the aircraft back to the tarmac in the taxi process, the pilot has raised the landing gear and that has catastrophically uh, resulted in the damage to this particular air, air, aircraft. Now, through particularly starting from the 1900s to the 1930s, it very much started to build this concept of um, pilot error being at the source of this particular problem. So, um, in essence, we have uh, an intact aircraft returning back and it was the role of the pilot um, to actually uh, raise the flaps, which was the intention of what the pilot sought to do, rather than raise the landing gear. And therefore, the effort and focus became on how do we fix the behaviour of the pilot? What are the mechanisms, you know, and there's a lot of traditional mechanisms that we would bring to this sort of case, you know, ranging from uh, retraining the pilots, it might be around putting different labels on the, the, the controls, it might be putting two people being involved in, in, in the procedure and process, a whole range of strategies. Now, what's interesting about this particular event, this is not um, a one-off uh, event uh, that, that occurred, that in essence, this particular event 
um, happened 400 times in a 22-month period. So in that period, a whole range of behavioural interventions were, uh, were tried uh, and the result was repeated 400 times, um, which would suggest there was recognition of the pilot error, but the solution that was being applied was not achieving the desired result. So in this, this context, it's led to you know, a range of different uh, thinking that's evolved uh, over the years. Um, Eric, Professor Eric Holnagel um, uh, built the, the concept really um, uh, initially out of uh, Safety W and Safety Z, which uh, transformed into Safety 1 and Safety 2. And what he Eric started to introduce in, in, into the thinking was, well, maybe we're looking in the wrong place. Maybe the goal should not be to reduce the number of things that goes wrong and to reduce the number of things going wrong. We've traditionally come up with solutions of more constraint, more rules, more barriers, um, behavioral intervention, these sorts of things. What Eric um, proposition was, maybe it's more interesting to understand uh, how things go right. And the more that things are going right, they clearly can't be going wrong at the same time. So this set um, uh, us on a path of thinking differently um, uh, about safety and uh, how we should view and create the safety state that we're seeking to, to desire. So this then came into the work of Sydney Decker and um, Sydney um, has been um, communicating and writing in the space of human performance and human error for um, all of this decade um, and uh, has really built you know, some of the key insights. And the synthesis of the ideas between Sydney and Eric came into this idea of challenging our, our thinking, um, particularly our thinking about people uh, in this mix, this, this idea of the human being... Um, uh, the, the, uh, the problem to control. So our safety one view, as Eric would describe it, was people are a problem to control. And simply what we need to do is to constrain people uh, and the like to uh, reduce uh, the error quotient from occurring. So that's been turned around. Well, maybe people are a solution to harness. And by harnessing people, um, we can actually continually evolve and improve uh, and understand how we make things going right. So it was very much about shifting from the negative context into the positive context. And by doing that, it shifts the framework of um, the engagement that the people have. Now, the second principle um, uh, that uh, comes out of this uh, process is from Eric's work is maybe you think about building capacity through success rather than pursuing the absence of negative events. So a lot of our safety thinking strategy has come from this idea of let's find the incidents or um, the significant near misses or the, you know, the injury events, all of the like. Let's focus all our attention on this. And if we can understand this and suppress it, we're going to eliminate the problem from occurring. And I think many of us who have been in safety for a long time have realised that we end up in a repeating cycle. We're seeing the same uh, incident events recurring and recurring and recurring despite the application of this process. Um, um, so uh, Sydney and Eric really pro proposition this idea, well, let's actually build capacity. Let's understand how things work well. Let's put our focus and attention on how do we ensure that things go well rather than how, how they don't go well. Now, and it's not about uh, moving yourself out of space of under, un, understanding uh, error, but it's repositioning the discussion into the light of creating success rather than the avoidance of failure. It's a very different context to engage people with. And the third pillar of this approach was, well, safety has become a very bureaucratic, administrative and accountability-driven system. A lot of list ticking, a lot of auditing, um, and we've all seen the processes of uh, people uh, completing lists for list's sake, but not engaging in the process. And a lot of that thinking has driven the responsibility of safety to the point of transaction where the work is done, saying that if you just follow all these rules, you just do what we're requiring you to do, the system uh, will go right. So this other idea is, well, maybe safety is an ethical accountability across the entire organisation. 
that everybody's got to be engaged in understanding how work is created and how we set people up for success or failure. It might be in the way that we procure the equipment or tools, the work design, the, the methods, the resourcing, the training, there's a whole range of things. But it's saying everywhere from the leadership through to the front line, there has to be an ethical accountability engagement for understanding how work is done and setting people up for success uh, rather than creating the conditions where we set them up for failure in many, many conditions. So this is a shift. There's one of the things that I think it's really important to suppress is any discussion that says you're either safety one or safety two person, you know, um, that just leaves you into a dichotomy, which is unhelpful. What we're think, being very interested in is just pursuing this idea that there's a, there's a journey and a transition you know, from the spaces. So um, it's not saying, and particularly if you just switch from one to the other, um, it's failing to account for the work and the effort and the success that's been done in one context. But it's freeing yourself to thinking about how do we shift and, what's that, and where do we want to apply our effort and where, where, what can we do to actually transition into these um, two different um, states of safety. So it's about an evolution. It's not, not about doing one or the other in that space. So once we had these principles, the key about safety different was, well, how do we bring this into being? The principles are grand ideas in essence. And these grand ideas are saying, oh, well, they're really good. Now, how do we do, do this? So through experience, um, it was uh, clearly identified that you need a set of tactics um, to frame this safety differently thinking thinking around. And these have been refined and developed over the last five or six years to be the first uh, one being that what we really have identified safety, we got too distracted in safety in many regards. The key is really to think about and focus on what matters. So tactic one, let's get the important stuff. This is a lot of the work that's gone around critical controls and these sort of works in this space. It's thinking about you know, what are the important things that relate to work and relate to safety? And that's where we put our time and effort into that space. The second was an introduction of an idea and a concept I'll touch on a little bit more, but this idea of creating flexibility within a framework. And I'll give this a little bit more explanation, but it's understanding about where you set the boundaries, how you construct the rules and how you allow people to uh, make um, choices in the controls and the network methods that they use. It recognises that there's variation. The third tactic was which shift our learning process from avoiding failure to understanding how you create success. So this was very much the introduction of the, the learning culture and the, the learning modality and having that as a key tactic within SWEET. The fourth one, and this is nearly the most pivotal important one in the safety different process um, is what you're doing in safety. How does it build engagement and trust and what challenges engagement and trust? Now, uh, there's lots of uh, examples of this. We can look through performance metrics. We can look at through the um, disciplinary processes that apply to safety. But the, the question that you've got to satisfy is this contributing people to want to engage, take responsibility and openly share about the work that they're doing in that space. The fifth one is about having collaborative partnerships. We have, lots of organisations work with contractors and subcontractors. We partner with um, our clients in many regards. Um, traditionally in safety, it's been a very hierarchical approach, um, a master and servant relationship. And this is really going back and saying, um, we need to actually come from a partnership where we're all engaged in building the, a successful outcome for safety. And finally, not last but not least, is let's challenge and constantly integrate, improve and simplify the way safety is done. So it's really about um, moving into the, the, this con um, uh, uh, context of um, this is um, going to make it easier to do what we want to do. So they're the tactics. Then the final piece of, of the process is putting this into practice. Um, and in Safety Differently, it brings in the concept of Eric Holnagel's resilience engineering. So the idea is, is if we think about work, um, the first um, part of what we're doing is anticipating. So this is the work is imagined. It's about the experience we have in organisation, the plans, the work method, the risk controls, the skills, supervision, all of those sorts of things. 
And then understanding that work is done is in a different space. And that's in the work is done, how do we build the adaptive capacity to actually counter and accommodate the variations that occur? How do we mitigate? How do we have the emergency controls, those sorts of things? The fourth part is, is understanding performance. Make sure we've got in feedback that informs building that adaptive capacity. Understand how well do our controls work, for, for example, in that space. Are we giving people what they need? And once we're getting that information is how do we use learning to actually inform the start of the process, the anticipation, the way that the work is done. So this is about involving you know, the ideas of people in innovation. Ultimately, it's about engaging this flexible solution sort of context. Now, when we bring that together, this is what the concept of safety differently looks like. One of the interesting features though, is that none of this can happen without leadership. And the leadership is a really interesting question to engage in. Um, and what we would say is not safety leadership, this is the way that leadership is embraced across uh, an organisation. And what we've learned is there's a type of leadership uh, built around the principles of restorative just culture from, from Sydney Decker that are really core to this process. And enabling leadership simply says, says as leaders, um, to move from constraints to facilitation. So you need to become uh, an enabler. Moving from reactive to creative, right? So. How do you actually look at uh, challenges uh, to the performance that's going on and move into the creative space rather than the disciplinary space, for example? How do you move from having the answers as leading to posing much better questions? And ultimately, moving from the hero to being the host, in essence, how do you host your team, the people that you have influence uh, with, um, to actually take ownership and accountability and be the creators of, of the solution? So the characteristics of this type of leadership are then built around the, these um, characteristics of trust, shared responsibility, curiosity and learning. So with trust, you know, trust is um, this really um, thing that's really easy um, to break and really hard to create. Uh, so it's a real willingness to, to share open ideas, opinions, uh, feelings, these sorts of things. Um, and that, it's, that information is not used uh, in an adverse context. The shared responsibility is about being clear on role and contribution and delivering a successful outcome and the ownership that an individual needs to exercise to make success happen. Shared responsibility is a really important principle uh, in this space, that this responsibility for safety should not just rest at one point where the work uh, is done. And curiosity, I think, is the greatest attribute that we can bring to safety. Curiosity being the design to learn without constraint, you know. Really, this is a key thing, to seek out the answers to questions and realise that those answers might be um, surprising if you're open to receiving new and different information in that space. So ultimately, what we're talking about in this space is thinking about how do we shift from investigation uh, uh, to learning? Um, and really, you know, when we, when we look at this, if the benefits of learning are realised when the leader is willing to embrace an alternative point of view. And as a leader, we could also substitute in the idea as a, a safety professional or expert. Um, uh, so really being willing to operate something different to what we thought um, was, was that position in once we've understood and engaged in the view of the team members who have been emboldened to offer something differently in this space. So we suggest, you know, as a framework of this model, there's really sort of five key uh, questions to try and understand is, how is success created and broken? What helps and hinders performance? What tools, resources, and strategies do people rely upon to achieve success? What conditions and constraints make it difficult? And what mechanisms are in place to understand how success is created or how success can be, can be challenged? Uh, we often are very keen to understand what helps or hinders uh, people um, to do the role. So in this process, what we've come to learn is that um, there's a lot of challenge around expertise. Um, there's been a lot of work done by Philip Tetlock uh, in this matter. So if you'd like to in, uh, sort of look at this information a little bit more, but the problem with experts, they come with a bit of cognitive dissonance. They've got assumptions. There's hindsight bias. There's a, bit, there's a lot of myopia. In, in that process. 
it's not saying there's not a role for experts, but it's about understanding the role of experts in actually choosing and understanding the problem uh, and the solution. So in doing this, we would say in safety differently, there's a new role for safety uh, professionals in moving from being compliance police, um, being the safety leader, being the knowledge set, um, centre, being the work method expert to a new view of a safety professional, being a curious creator, being an enabler, being a guide, being a facilitator, being a coach, being a connector in that space. The, um, sorry, the, the, um, the heart of this concept is that the safety professional becomes the architect of building engagement and trust facilitating leadership to engage in the space, facilitating the line management, facilitating where the work has been done in trying to um, open and communicate and solve problems in their space. Now, one of the other concepts I, I touched on briefly, which has been very essential to this, is this eye of flexibility within a framework. And we could spend a long time on this one. I'm just going to try and touch on it very briefly. This idea is firstly, depending on um, uh, the critical uh, nature of the risk, um, you'll have a boundary around the freedoms that can be applied. So they may um, expand or contract depending on the work that's been, been done. So what we've found that's really key to these principles, if you um, embrace and allow um, people to engage um, actively in this space, is work has to have a clear objective in that space. You have to have a few and simple rules, and those rules have to be setting up success, how to do the work successfully and safely. Um, we need to re remove the faults and jetsam of rules, out of which just cloud and actually hide the important rules in that space. Um, you've got to have clear boundaries uh, uh, in place. There's got to be discretion and freedom of action, and it only works where you've got um, the skill and will of the participants to be actively engaged in this space. So, so there's, there's different points that this can apply. You need to have good decision support. So when there's variation, you've got to give people good information to decide to do something differently. And the work has to have an underlying um, purpose. And ultimately, you know, the way that the work is looked at is you've got to have a tolerance uh, of, uh, of the team for uncertainty and ambiguity. So that we know that this is the case, all the work, and you've got to understand that and work out how to embrace that. So bringing these principles into line, Holnagel really went back and say, well, if we're going to engage in these ideas and improve them, we've got to think about where it's best to place our effort. A lot of our effort has been placed on the bottom end of uh, this curve, where very few times we have the incident events, and that's where we po um, uh, pose all of our, our effort uh, and action. Um, uh, in a very small amount of times, there's unsurprising successes. Um, and, and again, that can be another point to think about. But most of the time, work happens uh, in one way or another, in an imperfect or perfect manner, uh, without those unwanted events happening. And maybe there's a much better uh, place to learn uh, that's in this space where that ordinary work is occurring. So again, this is about embracing thinking about that process of let's understand what goes right. So uh, we're not focusing our efforts on what go, goes wrong. It's interesting during COVID um, uh, that we've seen, um, I think some unintended practical applications of you know, the thinking around safety differently. If we look at what's happening out in the retail space and things, a lot of the ideas and things have been put in place have been actually done and generated from the workforce themselves. We know in, um, in lots of organisations, it's the frontline workers who have been actively engaging and thinking about how can we set up and successfully operate in these, these environments. It's been a very adaptive environment and there's been a huge amount of innovation to try and navigate um, this very difficult challenge that we're working uh, within. And that's because we didn't have the rules and the processes set up that we needed to have uh, in this space. So safety differently is a shift in thinking now. It's about moving from hunting error to understanding performance. And performance, both good and bad, is uh, in that equation. You've got to, and it's been about systematically being connected to the tools, resources, strategies that people rely upon and the conditions and constraints um, that uh, uh, people have. So if I go back to our aircraft, which I touched upon, now, is this pilot error or is it 
um, the pilot's been set up for, for failure. So um, if our traditional thinking around Heinrich uh, and, uh, and a lot of the thinking that's come out of that space was very much based in the human uh, error uh, model. But um, this problem uh, was addressed by um, Alphonse uh, Chapinet. And uh, Alphonse was a psychologist who was brought in to try and assist in this problem. And what, um, what he did that was different was talk to the people involved. So he engaged in this idea of understanding the pilots and what their worldview was. He talked to the engineers. He actually talked to the aircraft manufacturers. And at this time, the design of the cockpits were changing on every aircraft that was being delivered um, uh, during the thing was changing in the layout of the cockpit and the dashboards. And um, even the two levers that controlled the flaps uh, and the landing gear could be uh, switched from one aircraft uh, to, to, to the other. So in understanding that context, a solution was developed was saying, well, if there was a better way for us to know how to control um, uh, the, the flaps or the landing gear, um, it would be a better solution. And um, the basically working through that consultation process, this idea came up of putting a wheel uh, on the landing gear lever and a flap on uh, the, the flap control. And in essence, this eliminated this problem from occurring through this simple, simple change. So it was this first, um, Alphonse Chaponat is accredited as being the father of human factors or starting to think about how do you engage in design? How do you connect with people? And how do you understand how people act, interact with the work system that they're being presented with? The interesting thing is this solution still exists today. If you look at the cockpit of an A380, you'll see um, the flap control is still a flap and the landing gear is, is still a wheel. And same with a Boeing 777. Um, it is. Now, there's lots of other technology that's been brought into place uh, to solve this problem at the same time, but it's interesting that uh, it has continued through into the current design. So what's been really evident in Safety Differently and Whole Nogle and Decker's work is that this idea of the workers imagine the perfect procedures in the system if just people followed the rules um, is uh, nirvana, uh, in essence. It's not understanding the work is done. It's a really messy, complicated place with <coughs> lots of different needs and th things that are happening in the space. So when we go out in this mode of safety differently, it's about looking at work differently. So this is an example from a construction site, the use of a cheetah bar. The question um, shifts from, is this a non-compliance? This is clearly not the, um, the system tool for tensioning this bolt uh, in this context. But the question is, is it right? Is it wrong? If it's not within the system, why it's not in the system? What is the problem that the, uh, the worker is trying to solve in this space? And there'll be lots of different questions, but the shift in this space is not to come from a point of judgment, is to come from a point of curiosity um, and ask different questions about the space. What we know in work is that people get imperfect designs of work. They're, they finish the design and people actually then, they try and work between the standards and what they actually need, need to do. What we need to do is to facilitate and improve that um, process. What we do know uh, in the safety space is the more rules that we put into place, the more we reduce autonomy and the more we reduce responsibility. So what we need to do is think about more how we create work conditions that help people succeed. The other thing that we need to embrace is variation is understand the work very looks like as it's planned and it is varying and we need to engage in a way that helps people adapt successfully within this variation. So coming back into practice, um, when we look at then applying this in the real world, we found there's a process. There's a discovery process where you need to actually go understand work is done. You know, we, we use a process um, called embedded discovery. It's actually out in the field working with teams uh, just to understand, you know, that particular work, work condition. And we apply the tactics and thinking uh, in that space. Trying to think about how you understand performance, bringing different measures like a capacity index. Um, and in the learning space, um, using tools like collective improvement and the resilient map learning teams and using experimentation essential. It's not about changing everything at once. It's about coming up with some ideas and, and, and testing them. So in this process, particularly about challenging where we weren't, 
you can learn in the incident space, so I'm not suggesting that you can't, but we've got to understand that it's limited. Uh, uh, it has restrictions where people aren't as open as we would like them to be. The really interesting place is the when work is difficult, when it hasn't gone wrong and there's um, uh, a need to understand and improve uh, the work. And I'll come back to that in a moment. And finally, we can look at when work is uh, successful. But what we've found, if you want to learn the most and find the most surprising results, is you actually focus your attention in the when work is difficult space. In this space, people are willing to share because they don't feel they're in a context of blame. They don't feel like if they share something that's not within the procedure or process, um, that there's an adverse outcome to, to result, result from that. What they're wanting in our experience is to share their difficulties and then give you an insight into what they're doing to work around those particular difficulties. And in essence, they're asking for help, you know, and they're asking to be listened to and they're asking to be, have con um, a contribution into a more successful me me method of work. So this is a very consultative process, you know, in a collective in, in environment, you're actually talking to the people who do the work and really trying to understand their ideas. Coming from ideas is then, well, let's find some micro experiments where it's safe to fail. This is applying the flexibility within a framework. We're gonna put some boundaries around something, test something out and then move it uh, into practice. So I'm just gonna pull out some, you know, some examples uh, from in the field. Uh, one organization, a rail organization we were working with, there was um, a problem with the, the injury of shunters um, being struck by hydraulic lines, the air pressure hydraulic braking lines when they were decoupling the carriages um, together. And in that process, going through talking to the people who do the work, they, um, it came to, uh, to be that they shared that, well, in one part of the organisation, they, they have an alteration to um, the couplers. They, uh, in, the, in the dummies that seal off the, um, these particular couplers, they have a three millimetre hole drilled. So that means that when they go to actually decouple that, if there's air pressure in the line, it actually makes a hissing noise through, through it. And they're immediately brought to the attention that there's actually energy within the system. And this has been a long practice, but it wasn't throughout the entire organisation. So a result of that simple exercise was the discovery of there was already knowledge and solution in the organisation that was then brought through the whole um, organisation because the attention had been brought to it through the process of um, undercutting a learning team. And this is an, uh, just an, uh, another example um, of a site, you know. And, and again here, um, we've got um, a worker who's working uh, on ballast and one of the issue was you working on trains up to a you know a kilometer along in this process a lot of issues with um, tripping and falling and, and uh, injury in in the process and through the, the learning team it was discovered well there's actually another location uh, in use um, which had uh, all had solved this problem but had been repurposed for another reason um, which wasn't required and that the, the simply the activity could be transferred to a pre-existing solution. I'm just going to share a few other case studies um, from some of the other uh, um, uh, interactions uh, in the field. Um, this is uh, just an example uh, from London Luton um, Airport. Um, the security um, team there had the, the job of uh, confiscating all the items that come through the x-ray scanners um, and this is uh, creates uh, a uh, significant amount of angst and, and often anger in the process that they removed. They simply came up with this process of offering people the opportunity um, to, to collect it and hold it in a bag. Um, in that bag, they could collect the bag at no cost uh, on their return uh, to the airport, or they could ask for it to be mailed to another location. And uh, it's been a really successful uh, process. Uh, as a result, the, they got a business, but they actually turned that activity into a profit centre uh, for the airport. They significantly reduced thousands of items going to the waste stream. And it completely you know, had a significant impact on the change of the relationship between the security guards um, uh, and uh, uh, the passengers. Just another example from London Luton Airport, the confiscation of food. Um, they were confiscating, you know, hundreds of thousands of items at the airport that weren't allowed, that weren't allowed to go through the, uh, the scanners. Again, causing a lot of anguish uh, and grief in that process. One of the workers said, well, this seems, you know, quite solvable. And this is the worker that came up um, with the, the solution to the, uh, this problem. 
And um, they said they, did, they joined, a, uh, made a partnership with one of the local food charities and um, they rerouted um, the items to go to the charity. And when they had the interaction with the passenger, they, they invited them to say, we can dispose of the item or we can have it donated uh, to charity. If you would like to donate your item to charity, um, it'll go to um, uh, these uh, particular food groups. And again, um, it had a huge impact. Now they've got over 100,000 items each year going to local food um, uh, charities, which improve the corporate responsibility, improve the environmental impacts from reducing the disposal, which was happening before. And it actually, passengers came away with a positive feeling, the interaction actually felt they'd made a contribution rather than having something uh, taken from them uh, in, in that space. Um, I'll give this another example um, in terms of uh, this came out of a fatality event um, and uh, in the construction of uh, uh, Shell service stations in Southeast Asia. This um, was in Ind Indonesia. Um, and again, uh, a different approach was taken to this process rather than going through the traditional approach of, you know, uh, looking at why you know um, the harnessing requirements were complied with so that the working at height um, uh, procedures had been breached and a whole range of things. The death was caused by a subcontractor on the site. The process um, was taken to actually talk to the, the contractors and the people involved said, and get their ideas about um, doing this construction pro um, project differently. And the idea came out immediately from, from, the, from the constructor saying, we don't know why we're constructing these things six metres in the air. It was surely they could be constructed on the ground. So the question was put to the engineers and the engineers said, no, of course we can construct it on the ground. It's just that nobody had asked us that question. So it wasn't the engineers getting it wrong or anything else. It's just they're operating within their own paradigm. They're not understanding the work as done component. But if you put a different question to them, they can assist with a different answer. And they said, well, why don't we construct them on hydraulic ramps? And in essence, that was done. Um, the hydraulic ram method uh, was developed, put into place. This shows you what it looks like. And this idea is about how you use learning teams and design and safety and design um, as part of the whole process of engagement and this is this ethical accountability about everyone being involved uh, in the process. The interesting thing was, this is the impact that it, uh, it had. Uh, in the construction of a given canopy, it reduced the working at height from 3,250 hours per canopy to 50 hours. The time frame construction went from 25 to 30 days down to six to eight days. It was hugely more efficient and much safer um, as a result in that process. And again, this came from an Indonesian subcontractor being the key idea. Not the way to actually do it, but the, if you like, the initiation of challenging, asking a better question in this space. As a result, this process has been rolled out all across um, Europe and is now the standard way of doing this process. Some, a couple of other examples. Um, this is just looking at a rail co corridor. Um, there was an issue in working in the live rail space of, um, uh, managing emergency egress between the live rail corridor and the simple solution you know coming up using PVC pipes and clips which meant in one direction you could not go through the barrier so you could not go into the rail corridor through um, that barrier but coming out of if you needed to exit quickly it was e uh, uh, easy to exit um, by the clips releasing the PVC barriers so again these solutions may be imperfect but they're starting to point say ah Okay, how do we bring this into the system of work um, as it is? Another really interesting example was um, with Qantas, with uh, a process of working on the A380 uh, engine change. Uh, Qantas um, had, had issues uh, with the A380 engines and they needed um, to change all of the A380 engines across um, the fleet. Uh, this process uh, took um, approximately three days for the, the fitters to complete the process. So an engine, in essence, the A380 came into the hangar, um, the, the um, engine would come mounted uh, on uh, a cradle uh, as such, and um, the, uh, engine, the uh, technicians would then work through the process of attaching, removing the, uh, the, the previous engine and attaching the new engine uh, into um, the aircraft wing. Now, when, when the um, fitters were asked what their key issue was, they said tools. 
And then the question was asked, well, what about tools was the problem? He said, well, the tools are expensive um, and they're um, also large and difficult and they're tightly controlled. So there's a tool store and they're only permitted to sign out one tool at a time. So in doing their task, they would have to exit the gantry on, on the aircraft, go down to the tool store, sign out the tool they needed, do the task they needed, return that tool, get the next tool and the like. And this process was put in place to protect the value of the tools. You know, they, they were an important resource um, in the process. And the few said, well, if we had the tools we wanted, where we needed, needed them, when we needed them, it'd be a much better process. And so they came up with a design, they modified the cradle, and they what they did was they locate all the tools that they required on the cradle at the point where they had to be used. And the fitters simply had to move from point to point around the engine to complete the process. The result of this was that um, the engine change went down to eight to 10 hours to complete the engine change from the three days. That had a huge productivity benefit uh, from Qantas's um, perspective, but interesting, it also had a safety benefit. They were no longer having to do the access and egress from the gantry and access and egress carrying large and difficult tools to, to manage in, into that process. So they got a significant safety improvement at the same time. So this is the idea that we tie um, uh, the, these two ideas to, together. You can see lots of other little practical examples. Um, this is an example from the US of um, a, a lane um, change. You will often see, you see it um, in uh, like in, uh, in Sydney uh, on the Spit Bridge where they've got to change the lanes all the time and they do it manually off the back of a truck. This team came up with an idea of having a little device mounted to the front of the vehicle and they drive through it at a constant pace and it shift, simply shifts the, the cone from one lane uh, to the other lane. There was a great little example of um, a design done where uh, they had low compliance with uh, pedestrians not stopping for the red man and they came up with this idea of creating a dancing traffic signal. And uh, they found that compliance significantly increased when they changed the interaction between that and the fact that you had a dancing traffic signal um, had people actually engaging and participating uh, in, in that um, pro process. Can be as simple things as we often see, this is uh, from a, a farm in New Zealand. Sometimes simple things are really good. You know, often we can have, complicated documents and procedures on things, but other times they've come up with a local modification saying, this is what you need to know when you need to know it. And thinking about that. So you have a look at this and saying, well, that's the, well, how do we embrace that? Um, there's clearly a need here. Let's not look at this as being a non-compliance or something that's different. Let's look at how to embrace it and how to engage it um, uh, as, a, as a solution in that process. So look, it's been um, a very quick tour um, through, uh, you know, some of the ideas of safety differently. Hopefully I've given you a bit of an insight into the concepts and structure uh, for the safety uh, differently thinking and some of the tools and processes that can be used and some examples of the practice um, that it has. Yeah, company, we do have a couple of questions. Are you all right to run through a few of them? Yeah. Um, the first question is, is there any correlation between educational background to safety too? <laughs> Sonia, uh, in all the years of doing this, I've never had that question. That's really interesting. Um, so I, I'm not able to give you, you know, um, uh, if you like, uh, an academic uh, resource. I know um, there's been some work done by uh, people in this space, I, I, I expect people like David Proven and the like would have probably more insight um, into this space. But to, to some degree, what we've found, particularly um, in the application of some of the safety two ideas around learning terms, there's real advantages at times in not having a safety background uh, in that space. You can have other backgrounds. So other skills where you've got um, skills of inquiry and analysis um, and communication, so what we would say is I don't think it's, it's a help or a hindrance um, in, in that space, um, but um, it is, there, there are skills that need to be, you know, adapted uh, and applied. So um, I would think again, it's about that um, quest more for learning um, and for exploration is more important than the technical skill. Now, you do need technical skills in this space. I'm not saying you don't need that um, in, in this space. There, there's a role for the interface, but you don't not need everyone to have those academic technical skills. 
would be my answer. Okay, Peter asks, would you agree that how a just culture is implemented is key to using it as a component in safety too? Because yeah, if it is used traditionally, it is still a blunt tool that promotes yeah. and seeks Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, since you know, Sydney Decker, you know, originally um, created the, the just, just culture sort of lexicon um, in their business. And Sydney's been quite amazed in their time how it's um, been reinterpreted. And uh, in some organisations around the world, you can see just culture probably just being re replaced with the justice uh, model, which means... It's about understanding, you know, crime and punishment um, as such. Um, so it's a really important question. You know, Sydney now talks about restorative just culture, and it's not about the abrogation of accountability in this model. Um, it's about deciding who get, who gets to decide, you know, what um, what happens within um, the culture uh, man management pieces, and how you actually explore engagement. And it, it's quite. Um, it's quite a difficult thing to actually execute and do. And it goes, it's central, you know, successfully building this just culture model is central to making learning teams work, building the engagement and trust and those sorts of things. So in the safety two world, I would very much agree that um, you can't do it without that um, underlying premise of restorative just culture. And another one here, what's the main difference between safety two and safety differently if both are based on ethical accountability, people are solution and a success focus? Oh, yeah, look, um, I, I think that the difference of safety differently um, is uh, the, 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 the structure and the tools of uh, implementation that have been constructed around it. So um, there's a clear alignment in the principles uh, and ideas. Uh, safety uh, differently draws a lot upon uh, the, the safety two um, uh, insights and the resilience engineering uh, work of uh, Eric Holnagel uh, and acknowledges that safe, sa safety do part of its purpose is, how, is being um, interpreting those ideas into uh, a model for um, strategic implementation and practice into organisations. So it goes much more into the application process. Awesome. Well, I don't think, unless there's more questions filtering through, um, I think we might wrap it up there. Uh, just a reminder to everyone that the video recording and podcast link along with Kelvin's details will be sent out on Monday. Um, so yeah, on behalf of Marsh, I'd just like to thank uh, Kelvin for his time today. I'm sure everyone got a lot out of the presentation. Um, Calvin, do you have any final words? No, just look very hopeful that um, uh, people do get something out of it. Um, safety differently is very much about sharing ideas and building upon knowledge and any way that um, from the, the audience today that we can share and engage and, uh, and build the practice. Very happy to join in those conversations. Awesome. Well, thanks, everyone. Um, hope everyone has a great day and um, hopefully see you at another webinar down the track. Thanks, Calvin. Thank you.